Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The greatness of our culture here in America isn't because we're more enlightened than any other nation, as de Tocqueville once said, but rather because we have an ability to repair our faults. And I do believe that a well-cooked meal, something that has some love thrown in it, is something that brings people together. I've made a career out of it. Welcome to Homemade, I'm Marty Duncan. My guest today is a culinary icon in every sense of the word. He's a James Beard award-winning chef, journalist, television host, food critic, author, and a champion of our restaurant industry too, especially the mom and pop institutions across the country. You most likely know him from his hit television shows like his travel channel show, Bizarre Foods, which took him to every corner of the earth to eat anything, and I mean anything, in the name of showing cultural similarities and differences when it comes to food. Like a lot of the world's most inconceivably strange foods, it looks sounds and smells a lot worse than it tastes. This is delicious. There's a slightly fermented and spoiled quality to it that reminds me of really great cheese. His new show on the Magnolia Network is called Family Dinner. As we were all locked down for much of last year, cooking at home was a real necessity. Andrew visited with families of every variety from all over the U.S. He joined them in the kitchen to learn about their favorite recipes and to talk about why Gathering around the table for a family meal is so important, maybe more so now than ever before. I've been a big fan of Andrew's for a long, long time, and I'm fascinated not only with his career in food, but his own personal journey, too. I am thrilled to welcome the one and only Andrew Zimmern, the AZ himself, to today's episode of Homemade. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today, Andrew. Hi, Marty. Good to see you. I've heard you say this before. I want to find the quote if I can. But you have always said that food has the ability to transport you to unlock memories. And that's true for everybody. I don't care who you are. Even if your grandmama or your mama didn't cook and you didn't come from a cooking household, little Debbie or a ho-ho or whatever it is that you ate as a kid, those things bring us together. I don't care who you are. They do. It is the common ground that we all should at least start from, don't you think? Uh, absolutely. And I'm a great student of history, and, and I try to always be teachable, and I'm a voracious learner and always have been my whole life. The greatness of our culture here in America isn't because we're more enlightened than any other nation, as de Tocqueville once said, but rather because we have an ability to repair our faults. And I think that in the last 10 years, I've seen us lose our traction when it comes to repairing our faults. We used to be much better at that. I think if I had a hope for our culture right now, 
it really is that we find a way to repair the problems that we all see. I believe in the greater good of people. I'm not one of these glass half full, glass half empty people. I believe the glass is refillable. And I think the area that we need to focus on is how we're fixing our problems. That to me is the big umbrella under which a lot of this sits. And you're right. I do believe that a well-cooked meal something that has some love thrown in it is something that brings people together. I've made a career out of it. Unifying. Yeah. Yeah, unifying. While you were talking about doing good and that it's really on all of us to try to do better, I want to bring to light the situation that we see with our restaurants right now. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've done personally? I know you're involved in restaurant relief. Can you speak to how each one of us might be able to help our local restaurants and our mom and pops that are just so vital to every community? Sure. My recommendation for everybody is to support the independent restaurants, not chains, that are closest to your house. Of course, I understand people are going to support their favorite restaurants. You know, if you love to eat at Gene and Ernie's Taco Hut, I'm not telling you not to. But the easiest thing to do is to grow where you're planted and support your local businesses because you know that their taxes go into paying for your kids' school books, your fire department, your police department. Right. And then probably most importantly, I would encourage people to go to saverestaurants.com. That's the website of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, a group that I was lucky enough to be a co-founder of. The restaurant industry is massive. We're the second largest employer in the country next to the U.S. government. We are the number one employer of single moms, single dads, first-time job seekers, last-time job seekers, returning citizens, those coming from jails and institutions, number one or two of immigrants. And we are a very special group of employees and workers, creative, tireless, but so many of whom can't get a job in another industry. Or don't want to get a job in another industry. That's right. The issue is no one got into the restaurant business to get rich. (laughs) Some people have, but no one gets into it for that. But the long and the short of it is that restaurants deserve federal help in the form of grants way before the other industries do that have been way more profitable. We put 93 cents of every dollar we take in on average back into our communities. We are the holder of trust taxes like liquor taxes and sales taxes that we give back out. We are the reason kids' books are on their schools in some small towns across America because the largest collective industry in that town is the food service industry. Right. And it's just, forget about the restaurants. How about the pipeline, the supply chain that goes in? How about the tourism dollars that circulate around it? So many people are reliant on this. So saverestaurants.com, please, please join us. Write your senator or your congressman from our website and let your voice be heard that you want restaurants saved. They are the first people you go to when your kid needs a sponsor for their soccer team. They're the first people you go to when you have a charity event, and they are the ones that always donate and always show up. Marty, you are so right. These are people that are vital to our community. Y'all know that Joe's Barbecue down there has sponsored your kid's soccer team for six years in a row. That's right, and I'll underscore that in highlight. While our industry is getting kneecapped, half the restaurants in America are closed. We're looking at extinction events. It's just been a, a horrific year for restaurants, and yet... Who is out there feeding first responders and anyone else who's hungry? Restaurant people. They're giving away and giving back. That is how kind and generous and loving and creative this industry 
is. I call them second responders because you know it's not just the bake sale and the soccer team. When there's a tragedy, when there's a hurricane or something, the first people to rush in are our first responders. And literally right behind them are the chefs and restaurants looking to feed people because that's that's what we know how to do. It's the truth. I've done it a lot of times myself and I have wanted to do it more than I've ever been able to, but it just goes to show you that the restaurant community is a community, part of your community. Yeah. All right, let's move on. I want to talk about your new show. Sure. I've loved all your shows. Thank you. Now, I will have to say, I turn my head anytime you eat something, and I turn the volume off because I don't want to hear it crunch either. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see it. I want to hear it sometimes. But I am so excited about this new show because it's something that I feel very strongly about and something I've kind of always wanted to do. You've got a new show called Family Dinner. It's on the Magnolia Network. Tell us about the premise for Family Dinner and how you came to it. And for me, it's sort of like things have come full circle from bizarre foods all the way around to what's eating America. And now you come to the family table. Well, it's interesting you say it. It starts with the show that you didn't like, Bizarre Foods. I liked it. I See, like I'm it. kidding you. I'm just busting your chops. I know. Here's the thing. We never put a big circle around it with a giant arrow pointing at it. And I never said it on camera. But in every episode of Bizarre Foods that we ever made, we always had a family meal. And when we were creating the show, one of the things that I insisted on was that we had some repeatable stories, that we would always do a process story because people want to know how something's made. Right. So we always had a process story in our show. Always. Doesn't matter whether it was blood pancakes in Finland or near beer in Moscow or wherever it was. We always had a process story. We always had a family meal as well. It was very important to me that we show people who live in Japan, how people who live in the Amazonia basin in Brazil eat and vice versa, because our show aired in 160 some odd countries. So while we were making it primarily for an American audience, I knew I could have a tremendous impact on how the world saw each other if they could just see how we all eat. Because my experience as a traveler before we ever made Bizarre Foods was people all eat the same. It does not matter where you are. Every culture, every jungle, every city, every restaurant, every farmhouse we walked into, it's the same thing. Everyone would always say to the kids, sit up, eat everything on your plate. These people with the cameras will be gone in half an hour. We promised you you could play more when they were gone. Don't eat with your fingers. Families do the same stuff. They laugh the same way. They bust each other's chops the same way. They love each other the same way. This is universal. And it was very important for me to show that. So... I did all the bizarre food stuff. I did all the travel channel stuff. I did a couple shows on Food Network, like All-Star Academy, which I love because it was mentoring young people. One of my favorite shows I've ever done. I would love to make more of that show. When the folks at Magnolia called up our production company, I own a production company here in Minneapolis, and they said, we want a show with the intuitive content look and feel. What do you think? Here's what we're looking at at the network. And the first words out of my mouth in the conference room were family dinner. That fits right underneath the Magnolia tentpole. It's the perfect, perfect Magnolia kind of show. And they asked me what that was. And I was said, well, let's have our host go around and actually show people how Americans eat. We're storytellers at Intuitive Content. We're really good at telling stories. And we wanted to tell the stories of the farmer in Minnesota that married the wife 
from Russia and she moved here with one suitcase and seven changes of clothing, one for each day. And now they have eight kids and they're the pillar of their community. And we wanted to eat with them. We wanted to eat with the immigrant mother that came across the border from Mexico, escaping violence in her home from her ex-husband to make money in the restaurant business. And three years later, was able to send for her children. She had to make the Sophie's choice, escape with her life and risk being able to go back and get her kids. She hid her children. She hid her children with her sister and left the country and sent for them three years later. So we wanted to tell these incredible stories of these incredible families and hear from them in their own words why they believe eating together is something that's important to them. Why is that the crucial glue that holds them together? And I said, let's do this. I want to do this show. And so we made 20 episodes of it, and it's streaming on D+, along with the 800 episodes of everything else I've done over the last 20 years. So it's actually, the D+, platform is really fun for me because I have people who've never seen Bizarre Foods binge watch it and send me something over Twitter. And it is just the coolest, coolest thing. The show has sort of stood the test of time. And there to be associated with that, the impact of that show never really hit me until it went on the streamer and a whole new generation of fans got to see it. Yeah, I had the same thing happen. I don't have nearly the catalog that you do. I've got one, two little shows I've done on Food Network, but... It's amazing, right? Now that it has another life. With Food Network Starp, I get these people emailing me and writing me and telling me how impactful it was and how motivated they were by my journey. And I'm like, oh, wow. And that's just one little thing. I can only imagine if it's you. Andrew, I want to ask you this. So do you think this need to tell the story and sit around a family table comes from your early childhood where you had these great family gatherings with your own family, lots of people? Do you think it started there? Oh, for sure. Like, is it that deep and ingrained in you from back then? Well, it's worse at the risk of trying not to cry because it always chokes me up. But, you know, my family, we had these incredible big family meals. And it was so exciting and so much fun. And to sit at our family's table was always such a joy with whoever was showing up, the 20 people that were invited and the extra 10 that were just like, yeah, come on over. We're having people to the house tonight. That's how my parents entertained. The door was always open. And the word no never came out of my parents' mouths. If there were extra people coming over for dinner, I remember Almost every weekend at some point, I'm talking about I was a little kid, single digits. Right. At five o'clock, my dad was like, come on, I need your help. And we would go to the supermarket. There was a couple of miles up the road from us in our little summer community. And the reason was we had to buy more half chickens. My father's solution to feeding more people was half chickens because you can cut legs and thighs and breasts. He said, let's just keep grilling half chickens. We'll just keep grilling chicken until everyone is full. Yeah. And he was such a great entertainer and storyteller sitting around the family table. And, you know, my parents divorced and my mother had a horrific traumatic brain injury and everything just disappeared. It just vanished overnight. My reaction to all that was to become a drug addict and alcoholic and not feel anything. So for 15 years after all this tragedy, I anesthetized myself and became a user of people and a taker of things. And and eventually I was blessed enough to get sober and stay sober. And so when I was making family dinner, I realized without getting too Freudian, why I 
15 years earlier had said a family meal has to be part of every episode of Bizarre Foods because I'm constantly in search. I'm chasing that dragon. I'm an addict. Oh, yeah. I want to go back. I need to feel that. You want to feel that. Exactly. I want to feel that again. Yeah, the taste of things that you remember from your childhood helps to spur those memories. 1,000%. You said your grandmother's roast chicken was like one of your favorite things, and I'm sure that's part of the reason. It, it must prompt you to remember those days in your grandmama's kitchen. Can you take us there? What did her kitchen look like, and what do you most remember her cooking? Well, it's great because I love that you call her my grandmama. And we called her Booby, but we have the same feeling. So she had a small apartment on West End Avenue. In New York. Between 79th and 80th. And she had a big living room. And then you went up three little steps into a dining room. And there was a corridor to the front door. And then through the dining room, you could go down this other hallway where there was her bedroom and a guest bedroom and a shared bathroom. And she had a tiny little kitchen, that typical little 100-year-old New York City apartment kitchen that had a window at the end of it with one of those weird, like, fans, the little pull cord that, like, was all greasy and dusty. (laughs) And there was only room for one person to stand in the kitchen and cook. So when I was little, I sat on a stool in front of that fan, and I watched. And then eventually, she would hand stuff to me. And then eventually, she would have me help her. I would go over there once a month on Saturday mornings, and we'd shop all morning and afternoon, cook all night, then watch some TV, then get up Sunday morning, cook some more, then the whole family would come over Sunday lunch, including my dad, and then I would go home, leave with him at like two, three o'clock Sunday afternoon. I loved helping her, and I loved learning what she was doing. And my grandmother had her kids when she was older. My father had me when he was older. So my grandmother was not a, hey, let's go to Central Park and kick the soccer ball around, grandma. Right. But the cooking thing we had in common, she also, we called it Holocaust mentality. She had lost a lot of relatives in the Holocaust. So she, like many other Jews of her generation and subsequent generations, I think I've inherited some of it. There's a part of us that feels like at any moment, it could all go go away. away. Just like my dad lived through the Depression. There you go. Same thing. So she had this apron that she would wear. And when she was taking stuff out of roasting pans or working with chicken fat and all the rest of it, she would wipe her hands on the belly area of her apron. And instead of throwing it in the wash after she used it, it was good for another day, another session in the kitchen. Why not? And so on Sundays, when we would cook a frequent Saturday, the clean apron went on. Stuff is all over. Every Sunday when I left the apartment, at three in the afternoon with my dad, I'd get this big hug from my grandmother, but I was little. So my face would go right into this big pile of roasted chicken fat that was at gravy that was on her apron. And that smell, when I make her onion gravy, I can taste it. I'm put back into her kitchen. But what I remember the most is like, I immediately think apron, apron comes into my head. It's so weird. That's wild, really. Yeah. I mean, her kitchen was a happy place that filled up with people too, even though she was not what I would call a happy woman. Hey, Andrew, will you walk us through that roast chicken recipe really quick? I I mean, everybody's got their way of doing it. Oh yeah. Super, super, super easy. Although my grandmother had uh, hers and I've 
I've refined it now. My grandmother never put anything inside the cavity of a chicken but salt. So I've changed it up a little. And the formal recipe is on andrewzimmern.com. But I take my chicken, I wash and dry it, and then I let it sit overnight in the fridge. It really helps make the skin super tight and crisp and delicious. And I rub the whole thing down with butter, sprinkle it with salt and pepper and different seasonings. I put lemon and celery and parsley and other aromatics into the cavity. I truss it. I tie the legs together and pull them up the backside by winding around the wings. And the reason I do that is the same reason that if I was cooking myself, I would cook faster with my arms raised, right? It pulls your scapula, your shoulder blades up. Okay. I really thought you were going to say when I'm cooking myself. And then I thought, I hope he doesn't cook himself, but you're actually talking about cooking yourself. Yes. The, and, and here's the reason. Dark meat cooks slower than white meat, right? So what we're trying to do when we're cooking poultry is accelerate the time of the dark meat quarters and their attempt to reach 170 degrees when the connective tissue breaks down and the white meat, which is dry and nasty at 170 degrees. So I do that first and foremost. Anything under three pounds, it goes right into a rack. I scatter onions all around the pan. I take a few tablespoons of chicken fat because I always have leftover chicken fat in a little jar in the refrigerator. And I drizzle that on top of the onions so that they start roasting and caramelizing after the first half hour of cooking. And the reason that I do that, people, well, why don't you baste? Well, I don't baste. I never baste. I'm trying to preserve the moisture in the white meat of the chicken. And at the crown, where the keel bone meets the thinnest part of the breast, that's where you're basting. Why do I want to put 325 degree fat onto the place that I'm trying to keep at 165 degrees at most so it's nice and moist and delicious? So I roast the chicken at 90 minutes, 110 minutes, depending on the size, anywhere in between there until the dark meat is just cooked through, because I already know the white meat is cooked. Then I pull it out, let it rest, which helps the dryness issue on the white meat. And while it's resting, I make a simple pan gravy with all of those browned onions and the chicken fat and everything that's in there. I emulsify the chicken fat into the gravy. It gives its richness. And I use homemade chicken stock with that, so it has a really deep, delicious flavor. My grandmother never would cook with anything other than homemade chicken broth. And and that's really the generic recipe. If you're cooking with bigger birds, I'll take a roasting pan. I'll put about a half inch of stock or water in it. And I'll actually get that boiling on the stovetop and I'll poach the bottom of my turkey, let's say. Really? For 15, 20 minutes, then take it out and stuff it and put it in a rack and roast it. Yeah, because I want to give the place that's going to cook last a head start right? So that my white and dark meat all comes together at the same time. My grandmother's roast chicken recipe, she would shove, and I mean shove, three chickens into that roasting rack that inserted into that roasting pan. It's a tight squeeze. And so she would always cook it a little too much because she needed to make sure that where it was all connected, it was like this big block of chicken. And I do my gravy usually ahead of time with onions and lots of wings and backs in a saute pan. And I just let them roast until they're all brown and caramelized for like three hours at like 250, 275, and then hit it with stock and boil it, reduce it. And I make this concentrate that I just can quickly thicken and use for gravy for when I'm entertaining. I'm coming to your house. I'm coming like right now. Food's good. Everyone always says to me, are all those pictures on your Instagram? Is that stuff that you're cooking for yourself? I'm like, well, 
99% of it, that's what I'm cooking. So there's some people who have complained it's too much roast chicken, but I'm obsessed with roast chicken and all its different cultural variants, whether it's charcoal roasted chicken of Central and South America or the, you know, Hainan style poached chicken and fatty rice over in Asia. I'm just, I'm obsessed with roast chicken. I love it. You're listening to Homemade. Stay tuned as Andrew tells me more about his grandma's recipes, which rock star's guitar he bought at an auction, and what he'd make if he ever had to compete against Bobby Flay. I'll be right back after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Marty Duncan, and my guest today is award-winning chef and TV personality, Andrew Zimmer. A couple of other recipes from your grandma I want to bring up, because they're favorites of mine, too. Sure. Stuffed cabbage. Stuffed cabbage is a winner and cheap and delicious. If she was alive today, she'd be mad. She'd be so mad. Huh. I took her stuffed cabbage recipe. She stuffed her cabbage with beef and rice and simmered it in canned tomatoes. Hmm with sugar and white vinegar and one dried bay leaf that was so old it had no flavor at all. (laughs) And it was delicious. And salt and pepper. I think she chopped an onion in with the beef and the rice. That was it. Six ingredients. It was heavenly. What that woman did with six ingredients. And look, is part of it my memory? Am I overly romanticizing it? Of course I am. However, I love her stuffed cabbage. And as I started to eat stuffed cabbage around the world, the good and the bad, I started to incorporate changes and flavors. And I think the I, I will put up, you know, if I went on one of those Food Network shows where you're supposed to cook one dish expertly, beat Bobby Flay is one of them. If I wanted to beat Bobby Flay, I would make stuffed cabbage. Oh, really? Uh, well, I've invested so much time in this. All right, Bobby, you heard that. I think that's a throwdown, Bobby. You and AZ. <laughs> Stuffed cabbage. Stuffed cabbage throwdown. So I've spent a lot of time in Africa, especially North Africa, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco. And when I started incorporating different herbs and seasonings from that part of the world in with my stuffed cabbage, it just took off. The sourness and the saltiness of preserved lemon, the earthiness of a little pinch of saffron, the sweetness from raisins. You start to put that into a stuffed cabbage, into a sauce, and reduce that to where the tomato literally glazes the tops of these things. So they almost look like candy apples coming out of the oven. Oh, delicious. And we don't have any rice. I roll it neither loose nor firm. But you know, when you're making meatballs or hamburgers, you don't like smash it together because it just makes them too tough. Just loosely rolled, the meat sets itself and it has we put a lot of herbs and vegetables in there as well to help with the mouth feel is so soft. You can eat it with a fork. You don't need a knife. I love Savoy cabbage. Something my grand, I don't think my grandmother ever cooked with a Savoy cabbage in her life. She cooked with giant head cabbage that was usually pickled and in a big barrel 
at the delicatessen that she would really? fight other, oh yeah, she would fight other grandmothers off with her cane to get the big, biggest heads so that she could have big rolls. Oh. My stuffed cabbage is much different, but my, I think my grandmother would find it delicious. I know she would. I want to talk a little bit more about your personal life, just because I always think it's fun. Sure. Um, what's still on your bucket list? I mean, what could possibly still be on your bucket list? You've done everything. Not by half. There are so many things that I want to do. I want to travel the world as I've done it for the last 15 years with my son. Oh, yeah. And show him every place I've been. Yes. I want to, in some more tangible way, create a little more equality in the world for all people. You know, I'm not going to lie. I've worked pretty hard at that the last 15 years. I believe if you've been given a platform, you owe society something immeasurably large. Agreed. And, you know, whether it's my work with the International Rescue Committee that Einstein founded in 1939, I'm their voice of nutrition here in America, or Charlize Theron's Africa Outreach Program and the work that I've done with the Electrify Africa campaign to try to get electricity over in Africa. More people have cell phones than have electricity there. If you solve the electricity issue, indoor cooking goes away, which means more people have better health outcomes. They're able to store food. People are able to store medicine. It's more better outcomes for more people. I spend half my time fighting for social justice causes for things that I believe in, but I still, I need to see more traction. I need to see more stuff happen. There are so many people who life is leaving behind. We are leaving behind whole swaths of our fellow brothers and sisters that have done nothing to deserve the outcomes that they have. It's one thing if you ignore it, you know, if you're given the opportunity to go to school and you don't, you got other issues, but we need to make sure everyone has school and everyone has food and everyone has the same shot at the same job. And we just, we need more equality in society globally and here in America. So I really do want to create more of a lasting impact there. And I'm sure the next 20 years will hold that. I also, there's a lot of stories that I still want to tell. I'm not a retirement guy. I'm a die in the saddle guy. I'm in the saddle for a long time to come. So, you know, I want to do more episodes of What's Eating America. I thought that series was really, yes, really good important. Show. We have a lot of things that we're working on right now here at Intuitive Content, both with me and without me. I want to grow my businesses. I'm a serial entrepreneur. There's a lot of stuff that I want to do. I don't have something on my list like, you know, learn to rumba or anything like that. Oh, that could be fun though, too. It can be. Well, you're a musician too, right? You collect guitars. I'm the worst guitar player in the whole world. Did you play in a high school band? I played in a horrible high school band called Aromatic Prawn Explosion. It was a Led Zeppelin cover band. Awesome. No, I'm just kidding around. You collect guitars? You collect rock and roll t-shirts? I do. I do. What's your favorite guitar? I have a 1967 ES-335. Gibson. Hollow body. Yeah. I have a Les Paul gold top <gasps> vintage that I'm really pretty excited about. Wow. Like Dwayne Allman. I mean, I've targeted certain ones. One of my favorite guitarists is Walter Becker from Steely Dan. Of course. And yes. when he passed away, they put up a lot of his guitars at auction and I bought one of Walter's guitars. Oh, phenomenal. Yeah. I, and, and this is true. I bought it a year ago. I still haven't opened it. Really? It was almost too emotional for me. I'd never bought the guitar of a person that I knew and idolized and learned songs on other guitars like them. And then I was holding his guitar and he was no longer with us. And it kind of, I got this like shiver up my back and I just said, I'll, I'll open it when 
when the time is right. I like to collect guitars, like to play guitars. For me, it's more risky business style. I crank it up in my headphones in my guitar room at my house, sort of go nuts. Why not? But you talked about things that I want to do. I thought when the pandemic started, I contacted a couple of people who were doing online guitar lessons. And I'm like, hey, I want to do online guitar lessons. And they said, perfect. Zoom's great for it. It's, you know, we can figure that all out. Then like a lot of other people, the idea that I would have more free time actually disappeared. I have less free time. I'm working on so many different things to try <laughs> to keep my businesses alive, other people's businesses alive. Right. And, and, and just stay sane too. Filled with so yeah. many things. I just, I literally have not had the time. So when, the, when you said that, I thought, what's one thing I really want to do for me is I want to play more guitar stuff. Yeah. The problem is, a lifetime of cooking, I have that ligament tightening thing <laughs> in your hand. You could see there where eventually too. your your fingers are going to splay down. I mean, just a lifetime of, yeah. of cooking. So I have to take care of my hand problem first. My right hand is fine, but my left that I make my cords with is less responsive than I would like it to be. And my thumb, I can't really use my thumb very well. So I went to my doctor. I said, you have to fix this because I'm doing this guitar thing. And he's like, there's a pandemic. That's elective surgery. So I have to wait for all of that. But yeah, I, I just want to tell more stories, spend more time with people that I love. I love that. Do some smooching and a hugging. Yeah, why not? What do you call it down in the South? Um, you, of all people, you must have some really funny name for it. I call it a little smooching and a hugging. I don't know. What do I call it? Um, mm, interesting. Um, tables have turned. Yes, the tables have turned. The interviewer the has become, yes, yes, yes. Think about it. You should have, I mean, there there is a nomenclature that exists in different parts of our country that I find just fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. It, as a born and bred New Yorker, I have, I have cousins that never left, you know, the Bronx and they have the greatest names and language. My kid comes home from school and words like flex and bootleg, bootleg yes. came back. I tried to explain to him when I was growing up, saying that was bootleg. I said when Pop Pop was growing up, bootleg was bad booze. Bad was bootleg. Yeah. It was. It still is around here. Yeah, and then for everything is bootleg. I've tasted a lot of homemade booze from your neck of the woods that's far from bootleg. And he's like, yeah, but dad, bootleg is like, that's like fake. It's not good. It's not. And I'm like, right, exactly. And he just couldn't accept a word from my generation was one of his and his grandfather's, which was hysterical. Like extra, you know, like... He corrects me. He corrects me when I use the word flex. He says, I don't use that properly, which is hysterical. So I love words. I love vocabulary and crossword puzzles and all the rest of that. So there's got to be a good name. I, know, I need to think about it. A good Southern it. nickname for smooching and a hugging and knocking boots or whatever it is. It's anyway, yeah. the world should all smooch and hug 10% more or more. If everyone that. just smooched and hugged 10% more, I think we wouldn't have time for other yeah, things. Put those phones down and do more of that. Listen, I've had a just a joy talking to you. You're a treasure. You're a national treasure. And uh, you're not just an icon on our TV. You're really an icon who in the truest sense of the word walks the walk and talks the talk. Oh, thank you, Marty. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. You have a great rest of your day. Andrew Zimmern's new show, Family Dinner, is available to stream now on Discovery Plus. And you can keep up with him on andrewzimmern.com or on social media at Chef AZ. 
on the next episode of Homemade. Like my friend Carla Hall says, it's biscuit time. We'll be talking biscuits with Chadwick Boyd, Carl Worley, and Scott Peacock. All of them are famous for their biscuits, and they're going to share some secrets with me. I've come to believe strongly that there is nothing else, certainly in the Southern canon that I know of, that expresses the literal touch of the cook more than a handmade biscuit. There just isn't. You won't want to miss it. So be sure to follow Homemade on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And please, I'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, I'd really appreciate it. Don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and is produced by All Recipes with Digital Content Director Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Danielle Roth, Jim Hankey, Maya Croft, and Erica Wong. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade.